Well, welcome back, everybody, to the Social World Podcast. Nice to have your company. And this week, we're back into our uh, zone of safeguarding, and I've got a very good, very special guest, somebody I've known for many years, Jim Gamble. Now, Jim's got a stellar history in law enforcement, but he also is a businessman, but he also is a, a very committed safeguarding professional and a passionate person about safeguarding children in particular. He uh, chairs a couple of safeguarding boards, as they're called, City and Hackney and Bromley, but as well as that, he's also been imaginatively managing things during the lockdown period, and I think we'll talk about that in a minute, but I think we ought to talk first, Jim. Uh, welcome to you for the first part. Nice to have you on Thanks, the program. And I think I'd like Thanks. to talk a little bit about your history, if I could, just you know, like where you came from. Where was the young Jim Gamble? How did he get you know, first into law enforcement? How, how was that? And, and how was the, the actual journey for you? Well, the journey was like most of my journeys in life, indirect and, and, and hardly ever planned. <laughs> I, I went into the military police as a, as a very young man at one time. I was on the train in Northern Ireland. A friend of mine and I got off uh, in a place called Hollywood, which is near Palace Barracks, and we called into the recruiting office there uh, for the army. And this was in the, the bad old days of the trouble in, troubles in Northern Ireland. Yeah, yeah. And we went in um, on a Friday, and um, on the Wednesday night, uh, we were on the boat uh, for Sutton Coalfield in England, where young recruits went. Um, to be tested and then to establish what would be the best path for them into an infantry unit, into something more specialist. And, and I ended up going into the Royal Military Police. From there, ended up in, in West Berlin after training when the wall was still up. And that was a, an experience of a lifetime. And so I began there as a, as a young non-commissioned officer working at uh, Checkpoint Charlie. Uh, and as I say, that really give me an insight into society which is divided not just by the way people think or the way they feel but structurally divided and and after a number of years in that role i was i was posted back to northern ireland still in the, the military police but into a unit called the ato pointer unit uh, the, the bomb squad oh right okay so that was the uh, the unit that kind of was called to the scene to make an assessment and a judgment about whether or not you needed to call um, the bomb squad in, call them forward. And that was an interesting period of time at a very, very difficult place um, in respect of Northern Ireland's history. And probably as was the natural thing at that time being from Northern Ireland, uh, having served in the military here, I really then just moved quite seamlessly into the police service, which at that time was was known as the Royal Ulster Constabulary here. Was it, I mean, I can't imagine however confident people were with you, you know, you or your colleagues, etc. I can't imagine, though, that there wasn't degrees of anxiety around seeing how the landscape, the urban landscape, was being affected by all the political and, and social changes that were going on. Well, you know, Northern Ireland and its history of the Troubles is like a bad marriage. There's there's three versions, you know. Um, there's yours and, and somewhere in the middle, the truth. 
But ultimately, I think when you were involved in a job where your colleagues were being sought out and murdered mm. by terrorists, um, you would imagine that there would be that fear factor. But human nature being what it is, actually, you always think it's going to happen to someone else. And maybe that's a survival mechanism. Maybe you think it'll not be me. Uh, but that's what I think enables people to go about uh, those jobs, which whatever your political view cannot be denied, uh, are extremely dangerous. In fact, at one stage, uh, the Royal Oscar Constabulary was considered to be the most dangerous police force uh, to work in uh, in the world. And I'm very, very proud to have been a member of that police service. I think we stood between warring factions at a particular period in time when you, you, you couldn't do right for doing wrong, where everyone was looking for someone else to blame uh, and I think as, as time has gone on, that the rewriting of history about the good deeds done by the few in the front line uh, makes that all the more frustrating. But Did then that would be for a different podcast. Yeah, well, yes. Okay. But, I mean, but it, it does help shape the man later. I mean, did you feel it effectively um, in these terms at the time or was it mainly just a case of do the best job you can and survive? I mean, because retrospectively, I take your point, you know, you were there effectively as a referee, you were there effectively as a, a, a as somebody trying to stop people hurting and killing each other. But now you can look back at the time. Did you feel it so much or was it mainly a survival issue at the time? I'm not sure I, I, I would say it was a survival issue. There's a huge level of comradeship, of, of camaraderie that, you know, we all felt we were doing the right thing. We all felt that we were doing a good thing and that greater good formed a bond and when you're working together in those extreme circumstances it builds a team spirit i think second to none but let me be really clear you know had i grown up in a different part of northern ireland with different influences mm. i i do recognize that i could easily easily have have taken a different path and ended up doing different things and the people i really admire you know, looking back in the history of Northern Ireland, are those people who lived in extremely difficult circumstances where there were issues that, that must have pushed them to the very edge who actually didn't resort to violence. Those people who operated within the law, stayed within the law, those people who didn't legitimize their frustrations, you know, in a way where they committed uh, acts of terrorism and, and later tried to reinvent that as being something they were forced to do. Yeah. So many decent people, Catholics and Protestants across the country in Northern Ireland, came through really tough circumstances and, to their credit, didn't default to the use of violence. No, I think, and the, the, I, I really understand the there but for the grace of God part of it. You know, you, 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 if you had been born into different circumstances, your whole outlook probably would have been conditioned differently as well. I, I, I do understand that. Absolutely. I mean, personally, I can never understand that. In about 1970, I worked in New York, in Harlem, and um, that was the absolute peak of the time of the five major mafia crime families in New York. And there was something like a hundred murders a week in some in one some of the peak weeks, but I never saw any of it. And I was right in the heart of the city. And you know, it was. And I remember only in reflection thinking, there, but for the grace of God, if I'd been in Brooklyn or if I'd been in one of the other bits, you know, it's just unbelievable. You know, the kind of the the way that history throws you. Anyways, look, not about me. This is about you. So, 
where did you go from there? You said you were in the police force then after, right? And you, you then moved upwards because you eventually achieved very senior rank. Yeah, I, I began my policing career as a constable, you know, when I came out of the army, went through training in Inniskill and then a constable in Andersonstown in West Belfast. And I was really lucky to work with some fabulous people who mentored, you know, give you their time, mentored you and helped you uh, develop. And, and I did move reasonably quickly through the ranks. I ended up um, as the head of special branch, the head of counterterrorism mm -hmm. mm -hmm. in, in Belfast. And, and through that, you know, it's one of those lenses in life where you get to see the very best of people and the very worst yeah. uh, of people, the, the yeah. brutality that man will inflict on man. Those individuals who claim, for example, to be freedom fighters who would walk into a bar and take young people out and kneecap them, you know, shoot them through the, the knees or break their knees with Terrible. baseball bats and cripple them for life. Uh, that type of, of inhumanity. And of course, you know, whilst I, I, I will reflect on what the terrorists did, like any organization, you know, I was in an organization where some people let us down. You will find that in any, you know, police environment in the world where the few let the many down because they don't maintain the high standards that you expect of those who are employed as public servants, given, you know, additional authority to constrain, you know, people's liberties or freedoms. And yeah. so it's, it's right that we expect more from the police. And I wouldn't be one to, to turn a blind eye and say, well, the police never got it wrong. Okay. Uh, of course they did on occasion. But, but my view very much on that would be, and I think the facts would, would support me that it was the few who let down the many. I think in any organization, Jim, you're not going to get any argument that there are always are a few bad apples and the the task is to not let them define the organization. Uh, I think that's what happens and that's where, we'll talk about this later, but that's where the, uh, the whole image of things and the media comes into it it's even more and more so these days. Um, but listen, you, you, you went right up the ranks. You got enormously um, important and very, very sort of senior jobs. But somewhere along the line, because now you're so well known for your work with safeguarding children. So w where did the genesis of that come from? Have you any idea where, where it started, your, your interest in, in making sure that children were safe and, and working in kind of... Um, child protection etc or working with people that were working in child protection can, can you remember times when you began to develop a real interest in that yeah I, I can remember you know exactly what drove me towards taking a professional interest in it uh, and and equally you know I remember and will to the day I die that where I was and you know what I was doing on the day that that professional interest became much more than a job because in essence, you began to understand the importance of the opportunity you've been given. But in the first instance, I was an assistant chief constable uh, in the National Crime Squad based in London. Um, Operation or large scale investigation into people going online yeah. to download indecent images of children yeah. uh, had, had been shared out of the United States where uh, a Mr. and Mrs. Reedy uh, had been arrested by the Dallas Police Department working with the U.S. Postal Inspection Service. Uh, and they hosted a, a server which contained, you know, thousands um, 
of, of images of child abuse. And they were making about $1.3 million a month when that uh, server was taken down. And when it was taken down and interrogated, there were over 7,000 IP addresses, so computer addresses, uh, linked to the UK that were suspected of using that site. And, and that was the, the genesis of Operation Or. That information was passed to the National Criminal Intelligence Service. It went out to different police forces and we weren't making progress. So I got a, a phone call from Bill Hughes, the Director General of the National Crime Squad, and he um, asked me to carry out a review of this thing called Operation Or. I'd had no contact with it uh, at no time in my policing career beyond at the very junior level when I was dealing with issues around domestic abuse and domestic violence, mm. had I ever really engaged uh, in, in, in safeguarding children. So I came at this with a very fresh, very inexperienced set of eyes. Uh, I recognise that. But I was asked to carry out a review to look at how we, the UK, were dealing with this unique uh, investigation at right. the time. Okay. And, and what I did was I, I looked at the sheer volume of it, which was intimidating, and looked at how we'd begun to deal piecemeal with it, sending it out to individual police forces, which, who really weren't equipped with the expertise or the experience to deal mm -hmm. with something which was internet-based. I mean, you're going back to, you know, 2001, between 2001, 2003. So this was very new ground. But what became immediately obvious as I began to talk to safeguarding professionals, child protection professionals, was that we weren't prioritizing what we were doing. So I made a, a number of recommendations to the then Home Secretary and the Director General to say, this needs to be categorized and prioritized on the basis of access to children. People who through you know, the, the nature of being parents have immediate intimate access to children. People um, who have jobs which give them in, intimate access and, and influence with children and young people, and category three, all of the rest. Um, so that would allow us to, to have a more focused approach. Then that the information should be brought back to the center uh, and intelligence analysis take place and then distributed in a more supportive way to individual police forces. But my final recommendation was uh, that this shouldn't be an organization like the National Crime Squad uh, who were dealing with serious and organized crime. It needed to be something much more eclectic, much closer to the ground uh, at a local level with children's social care and others. And, and so I sent the report in. Within a couple of days, I received a phone call to say I'd been appointed as the national lead for Operation Or. Uh, so my primary recommendation that it didn't come to us uh, was ignored. Uh, and indeed, then we were left in a position where this had to be addressed and had to be dealt with. The numbers no were doubt. huge, weren't they? The numbers they, were they, huge. They were massive. And, and I used to say that, you know, I made a number of mistakes with Operation Or in those early days. And the head of communications would always say to me, stop saying, that you've made mistakes, say you've learned lessons. So ever since I say that I've learned a lot of lessons from the mistakes that I made during the <laughs> early days. And, and, and that's true because you, you saw it as data. I know, I you saw this as, and, and when people hear me say that I made mistakes, they think, ah, yes, because these they did the wrong thing. No, that's not the reason. The reason is we didn't move quickly enough. We didn't understand that it wasn't about metadata. It wasn't about zeros and ones. It was about children who were being brutalized captured in indecent images that were then used as a commodity 
within this deviant online community. And, and I think it's only when you got to that point where you saw beyond the technology that you realize these are real children being brutalized, that you realize it's really important not just to, to harvest the images, but to identify and locate the children, to identify, locate, and hold to account those who have hurt them in the first instance. And you to know be, what? To be fair, though, Jim, you know, I mean, surely you, you didn't have anywhere near enough boots on the ground or fingers on the keyboard. I mean, you you would have required hundreds upon hundreds of, of of officers and staff and everybody in other agencies to be able to address it sort of swiftly. I mean, that's why it had, took such a long time, didn't it? Well, it did take a long time because you did need boots on the street, but you needed minds. You needed people, you know, at the most senior level in every police service at that at the front line to understand the significance of it. And this was this was a you know a, a, a steep learning curve because you've got to remember that in those early days people were absolutely seduced by the technology. They mm. felt that they couldn't investigate anything like this because they didn't, you know, they weren't able to build a computer. But actually, at its rawest and most simplest form, the lessons we learned was this is about protecting children. This is about safeguarding. Focus on the child and focus on the offender. And I have to say, you know, many, many, many years later, nearly 17 years later, I still don't think we've learned those lessons effectively enough. I still think we focus on the technology too often and not on the root cause. And the root cause is the predator. Yeah. Okay. I totally agree with you. Totally understand. And I want to talk about, you know, contemporary issues in terms of contemporary methodology, problems, etc. But back to then, because I know this was a very important time for you as well, because it led on to, um, well, you tell us about it, but it was like, you know, like CEOP uh, 2006, wasn't it? Yeah, well, it's, CEOP began in shadow form uh, at about the same time. That Could you see what it is? Sorry, could you just explain what CEOP is yeah. to people listening? Sorry. Yeah, and... and and I'll come back to that because that's a sad thing ah. that I now do need to explain what the Child Exploitation and Online Protection Centre is. Okay. Because at a time, a decade or so ago, you know, across the child protection of the safeguarding community, from law enforcement to those dealing with technology, you know, it was becoming a household name. But, but we'll get to that. Ah. The Child Exploitation and Online Protection Centre really came out of the Home Secretary's task force of the day where they'd begun to recognize that, you know, the internet, the convergence of the, of the internet with the real world, where predators could engage children using the anonymity of the internet and uh, to pretend to be something other than whom they were, that the risk was accelerating so quickly that they'd need to do something. And a number of people, Stuart Hyde for one, um, Sharon Gerling and, and a range of others had been working in this field. And through the Home Secretary's Task Force, we came together and produce the blueprint for a center that would help us focus on this. And I've told the story many times, and I, I don't want to, 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 to bore people with it, but it's important insofar as I said that this was a job to me, and, and it was. Whenever the CEOP offer came up, I wasn't sure that it was the right thing for me with a background in combating organized crime, fighting counter, you know, countering terrorism. Uh, and I wasn't sure about this. And, and ultimately, when asked to do it by the Home Secretary, I had agreed um, in the short term. And, 
And what happened was we put together a, an eclectic team, people from the NSPCC, people from local authorities, people from Google, child protection experts who'd earned, you know, really sterling reputations in policing where child protection wasn't, you know, one of the, the mainstays. It wasn't the place to go where, you know, you would really get a lot of support. And by bringing that small team together, we began to build the CEOP project. What would it look like? What would we do? How would we do things differently? And in the midst of that, one of the tasks I was given by Charles Clark, the then Home Secretary, was to create a name, a name that could bring all of the disparate agencies in this mixed economy community of, of safeguarding people, what could bring them all together? And probably knowing me as, as, as he did, he said, you just can't impose the name, Jim. You have to collaborate uh, with, with, with these teams. And we did that. Because we were working with these type of you know, dedicated people, um, and, and because of what we were doing was ostensibly good, we were able to get lots of help from other agencies, uh, commercial agencies in particular. And a, a branding agency from Soho called What If decided that they would give up their time and they'd work with us. And they came up with the name for the new center, which was CTAC, the Center for Threats Against Children. Mm. Now, everybody loved it. The child protection professionals, the safeguarding professionals loved it because actually it was fundamentally focused on children. I think those of us from a policing background liked the word TAC because it sounded like tactical. And we actually had something that we felt could be a, a national center that we could, where we could build a foundation that would take us forward. And I, I contacted the Home Secretary, told him that we were now in a position to begin the branding process, which would help the process of, of creating that identity um, within this mixed economy workforce. Mm -hmm. I was told that the party political conference was about to take place and that they'd consider it uh, as it happened in Brighton. And off they went. We heard nothing back till eventually I was told, no, they'd considered it uh, in Brighton uh, and the great and the good had reflected on it and they were going to call it the UK Centre uh, for Protecting Children on the Internet. No, that's not a name. That's that, a sentence. Catchy, eh? Yeah, well, you know, you can just see the branding people will be trying <laughs> to seek out whoever come up with that. But ultimately, um, I had my opportunity. I had the moment to kind of say, you know what? Call it what you want. I'm off. I'm going to go back into mainstream policing and do uh, what I used to do. And, and I contacted the private secretary to Charles Clark's office and said, look, uh, you need to, you know, I need to resign from the CEOP project uh, because, you know, you, you asked me to collaborate. I brought all these people with me. We've come up with a name uh, that we think, you know, really engenders what our focus will be and what we're going to do. And now you come back with a sentence. So his private secretary was a very, very decent and rational person. And she said, look, Home Secretary's in America, Jim, you need to to wait till he's back. And within the same 24 hours, I was then sent to Cambodia, not as a punishment, I'm sure, but actually to speak uh, at a conference that was taking place about child exploitation. So back in those very, very early days, 2004, mm. um, 2005, and I, and I went out there uh, determined now that I was going to reset my career in a different direction. And 
when we got there, when I'd finished speaking at a conference about, you know, online abuse in a country where nobody but the generals would have had a computer and even uh, even the the generals in, in the Cambodian National Police Service, I doubt would have been able to use it at that time effectively. You know, we talked about about the concept and what we we're trying to do. But after the conference, I was taken out by an American charity, the Cambodian Children's Fund, to a field called Sting Menchi. And this field is full of rubbish. So it's a municipal tip, you know, kilometer upon kilometer of, of, mm. of absolute rubbish. And when I say rubbish, I mean broken glass, needles. But the unique nature of this was that children and their families lived in shanties around it and within it. And during the day, they would scavenge for recyclable plastic. And if they could fill a bag as big as the, the, the smallest five or six-year-old child, they would earn 25 cents. They could earn more because predators would visit uh, Stang Menchi and they would pay to use the children. And I remember standing in the field in Stang Menchi on the day that the Cambodian's Children Fund took me there and we met a young child, Shrey Noy, who was suffering from what turned out to be an incurable blood disease. And standing in that field, you feel all at once the horror of what's going on. And you also feel unbelievably humbled. And you start to look at your own life and, 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 and the privilege that you have in an entirely different way. And you think of your own children. And, and standing in that field, you know, I was really struck uh, by what people were doing with very few resources to try and help these children. And I'd spoken to um, a number of, of, of allies in Microsoft, for example, who really were trying to, to cajole me into continuing with this work. And they had said to me, look, you know, the work is more important than the name. And standing in that dump and sting menchie, I actually realized that they were wrong. The name was really important. The fundamental focus on children was key. And as I drove back or was driven back to the airport to leave that day, I got a text message uh, from the home office, from the individual there to say, um, you can't call it CTAC, but call it something else that you can agree on and let's just get this done. And that's exactly what happened. You know, I felt here is something where you've got the opportunity to make a real difference you know, in other people's lives and a difference that, you know, has made something, you know, given me a legacy that I feel is is, is special. I think and that's I, very, very interesting, Jim. I'm sort of just interrupting you for a sec because not long before that, you were talking about essentially you had an epiphany, if you like, when you were in there in Cambodia, you know, and it helped crystallise your thinking. I mean, for me, it wasn't too many years before that in Sri Lanka, same kind of thing for me. And sex tourism was rife. Um, and it wasn't just an easy thing, a, um, an easy kind of good, bad thing, because it was just so complicated in terms of families and income and whatnot and had to be interrupted, but there was nothing else for them. You know, it was so very difficult, the yeah. whole thing. But sorry, it, 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 just, it just made me think of that, you know, when you were talking there about that moment that, you know, well, perhaps not a road to Damascus, but it certainly was a very important time for you by the sound of it. Well, you know, I mean, I've often described it as the road to Damascus moment. You know, it's you, you turn left instead of right. You know, you make a commitment to doing something that, you know, 
in a way that you never perhaps thought that you would. And and that's exactly I, you know, when I came back, I thought I've been given an opportunity to do this and I need to grasp it with both hands. And and the name SEOP, you know, doesn't roll off the tongue that easily. Uh, and but but that's what we came up with. It's about child exploitation and online protection. And in essence, in essence, people forgot the and was there. I think people in government, people in other organizations when it didn't suit them, thought it was about online protection. It was about child exploitation. In our very early years in SEOP, we'd built child trafficking desk. We'd begun in 2007, 2008 to look at issues around trafficking, to look at the vulnerability generated by young people who went missing. And we knew the longer they were missing, the more vulnerable they'd be, and they'd be exposed to all sorts of exploitation. But the greatest thing about SEOP was the people who worked in it. You know, I've worked with some fabulous people in my time in, in counterterrorism and across policing. And certainly, you know, the SEOP staff, the SEOP team would be right up there, eclectic from all sorts of backgrounds, you know, with different, within different organizations had had different approaches, but every single one of them, in my experience, absolutely committed to doing what they could in this new area uh, to make children safer. And I think they created a legacy that we can all be proud of. Well, let me ask you a question there along the line, Jim, because it's always been a fascination for me, because as you know, in my own way in social work, I was involved in child protection all my working life as well. But it was only about the time you're talking about, and certainly it really hasn't gathered, gathered momentum until the last few years, that people recognize the importance of multi-agency working. People recognize the importance of combining skills, of, of not like working in silos. Um, I, I, I never understood why it took so long for people to recognize the obvious, that you're much stronger together. And talking as you were there about the actual genesis of CEOP, if you like, and the multi-agency and how you how important that was to you to bring the great and the good and the skills in from everywhere. I mean, do you see what I mean? Do you, did you not get a sense of that yourself? Oh, absolutely. This was, you know, probably at the same time when people were beginning to think about the, you know, the mass units, the multi-agency safeguarding hubs. Mm. But, 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 you know, see, you know, I often say, you know, safeguarding is not a paper exercise. Lots of people write down theory on paper things they think will work. And, you know, one of my strengths at the time within CEOP is I knew what I didn't know. You know, I knew that everybody in that unit had a far greater level of understanding, far greater experience than I had when it came to, you know, identifying those issues that made a child vulnerable, looking at how best to interdict those. And, and one of the multi-agency things that comes to mind is the kind of our great partners in the NSPCC, you know, and I want to say they, they were great partners, but one of my first major battles was with the NSPCC because they were devoting staff to, this, to the CEOP team, but they wanted their staff to work in an NSPCC team where you would have a problem and you would go to them to ask. Yeah. Yeah. That wasn't our concept. Yeah. Our concept actually was to have child protection expertise around the same, tab around the same table that looked at the problem the child had. So in that child-focused context, we would 360 degrees surround the problem with people with a criminal justice background, people with a background in investigating international crime, uh, people with a background in safeguarding children in local boroughs, people with a background in education, so that as we looked at the problem, 
we were able to reach out and pull in our friends at Google or, or AOL or Microsoft at the time, you know, to say, how can we collaborate to make this better? And that was that was the real strength of it. Actual partnership that was you know, multi-agency. And and when I when I began in CEOP, we one of the reasons we, we didn't want it to be fundamentally focused on online safety was because the serious sex offenders unit, those people who tracked sex offenders who live within our communities, they were being subsumed into this new CEOP environment. And at the time we began, there was only you know a 7% success rate for us in relocating those sex offenders who'd been passed to us who'd gone missing. Mm. When I eventually left CEOP uh, at the end of 2010, we had an 87% success rate in relocating the high-risk sex offenders that were passed to us uh, to, to recapture and bring back into the system. And some of that was to do with the lessons we'd learned about profiling, but a lot of it was to do with the lessons that I'd learned around counterterrorism and how you put those pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together when you are trying to track an individual who doesn't want to be found, who doesn't have a wide circle, you know, uh, or a large network that will allow you to penetrate it. Someone that works in a small, you know, very, very covert manner. And so we were all able to bring something, whether it was through education, social care, policing, you know, we all, or, or technologists themselves, to bring something to that table. And I think the potential that CEOP had um was phenomenal. Well, I think and that, the fact I mean, I, that it wasn't met is tragic. I can't now. Oh, yeah. Before we come to that, just I just wanted to agree with you, if you like, by saying I've always advocated the fact that people have transferable skills. I've always advocated the fact, and so whether it's, as you said, law enforcement into you know other areas of law enforcement bringing into the protection of children or whether it's in social work bringing in sort of people skills and actually transferable you know it's just so logical but they were i felt people were constrained and almost shackled for far too long and that did set us back in terms of actual kind of um the work that needed to be done but go on sorry i interrupted you so you tell us about coming to the end of your time in CEOP. So. As CEOP had begun to develop and mature, uh, we had built international partnerships. We had looked at, at industry, the commercial world. We looked at how companies dealt with spam, for example. We'd been out uh, with a company in Australia, and I was always struck by the fact that when we were waiting to go into the meeting in the foyer, in the reception area, they had a massive TV. And this big screen would let you see um, spam rise and fall you know, the amount of spam that was being combated on the internet, you know, that, that mail that no one wants. Yeah. And this company was called Sophos. They had an office in Australia, an office in Canada, and an office in, in the UK. And by having those three geographic locations, they were able for eight hours a day in each office to provide 24-7 global coverage. And that, that visit bore out the idea of creating a virtual global task force. So, you know, how we could bring together the Australians, the Canadians, you know, the, the Americans and others through Interpol and Europol so that we could collaborate within a tight budget to do more, uh, each of us working up to the edge. So we had 
Seop had progressed to have that international footprint, had, I believe, an excellent um, reputation and had been the subject of a number of independent reviews. Stephen Boyce Smith, a senior, very senior retired civil servant, was brought in by government to review Seop. And his recommendations were that in order for Seop to continue to build on the success that it had, it should move from being what was an operationally independent entity attached to soccer for the provision of administrative support to a fundamentally independent national centre because we were already dealing with missing and exploited. And, and, and so a white paper was produced called The Way Forward by the then Labour government. And we were in meetings week after week about how this new centre would build, how we would change, become more eclectic, working to support colleagues across the country in this new converged on and offline environment. The election then took place and, and the government changed. You had the coalition government come in. And I remember at the time talking to chief executives of, of senior, senior uh, or large rather charities across the UK. And we were all concerned because when the government came in, their first thing was the, the burning of, you know, the bonfire of the Quangos. But we knew that this paper had been agreed. We had engaged with um, the then opposition, now coalition government, uh, as we were moving towards this. And on the Thursday, we were having a meeting about, and, and this is just to give you an insight to the frustration about why I did what I did. On the Thursday, we were having a meeting with government officials about the project board, about how things were going for the platform, how we were going to build, how we were going to build a 24-7 command and control center within the new CEOP so that if you were abroad and your child went missing, you'd have instant support from the UK, for example. And that meeting went absolutely swimmingly well. We thought we were on track. Um, on the Friday, I got a phone call from a senior civil servant saying that um, the most senior civil servant in the Home Office wanted to speak to me at 11 a.m. on Monday. Well, you know, I'm not stupid. When you get that type of phone call, you know that something is about to happen. And you know, that's being managed. So having made a few inquiries, I wasn't surprised on Sunday when the fact that the National Crime Agency, which was then being developed as the flagship law enforcement entity for the new coalition government, when the fact that CEOP was going to be assimilated into it was leaked. And I have to say that went against everything that we'd learned because the Serious Organised Crime Agency evolved from the National Crime Squad. The National Crime Agency was evolving from the Serious Organised Crime Agency. And we knew that if you want children to be at the very centre of what you do, they must be the priority, not a priority amongst many. And that week, the new Home Secretary, Theresa May, was due to visit the CEOP Centre. On the Monday, I had a very irate phone call, and I was the irate person, uh, with the senior sir, civil servant saying that I felt this was you know, tantamount to poor faith, that we'd been in these meetings, we'd be building this program of work, and CEOP was small and an easy target for government to flex its muscles. Uh, and credit to Theresa May, given um, that I'd had that type of conversation with one of her senior civil servants, she came to what had been a pre-planned visit to CEOP on the Tuesday. And during that walk of the of the shop tour we would do, taking people into the behavioral analysis unit, mm -hmm. letting them see the UK tracker unit, looking at the victim identification unit. Uh, 
Some staff were clearly very unhappy with her. One member of staff, trade union rep, openly challenged her about the leak. And when we got up into my office, I could see that she was not happy. Uh, but then neither was I. And we sat in, in my office in Seop on Vauxhall Bridge Road. And I said to her, and it's a matter, you know, reflected in the minutes, that I wouldn't be doing my job properly. I couldn't go out and tell people that if you see something that's wrong, you need, you know, to be professionally curious and respectfully challenge. If I didn't challenge her, not only about what she was doing, but the way in which she'd done it. And I remember sitting there across the table from her when I'd said, you know, this is, this is wrong. Who, who, who's telling you this is right for children? There was no answer. And after a period of time, I was basically told, you know, that I was a civil servant. I was a police officer and I'd do as I was told. And I can tell you, you know, my answer then uh, would be the same answer I give today. And that is I was operationally independent. It was incumbent upon me to tell the Home Secretary what I thought, having been involved in organized crime, having been involved in counterterrorism, and now in CEOP, and what I thought was that the path she was taking was the wrong one. And she said to me, well, look, we're going to have a, a, a review of this. We're going to go out to consultation. Well, that's the type of consultation, you know, that in many senses is written uh, before it takes place. That consultation went out in fast time, and of the at least 32 responses that came in, uh, I'm not aware of a single one that supported the trajectory. In fact, ACPO at the time said that putting C up into the, the large national crime agency was like hanging a bauble on a oh, Christmas the Association tree. of Chief Police Officers, right. Yeah. Yes, and that was said by Keith Bristow, who actually went on to be the Director General and a very good one of the, of the national crime agency. Such was my concern. In fact, I received a phone call uh, the next day um, and whenever I answered the phone, it was a junior minister who I know and, and respect to this day. But he said to me, you know, I thought I'd give you a call because you might be feeling you went too far yesterday with the Home Secretary. And, you know, and, mm. and quite frankly, I said to him, no, not at all. I, I don't feel I've gone too far and I feel it's right to challenge and I feel that what you're doing is wrong. And I've been told that you're going to consult. Long story short, as the consultation went on, uh, the problem with government is, you know, that big government moving quickly doesn't do the small things well. So I was being copied in, uh, as was appropriate, I suppose, as the head of SEAL, to the development plans. And first of all, it came out then that, you know, the National Crime Agency would focus on serious and organized crime. I wrote back to say, well, actually, whilst this is extremely serious crime, um, when you understand the nature of the predators who are involved in this, it doesn't fit the definition. So the next iteration came out to say, um, for the purpose of uh, this consultation, all of the work of the Child Exploitation Online Protection Center will be considered as serious and organized. So such was the, such was the focus that that was going to happen. And when I saw a draft that had been complete prior to the consultation finishing, I issued my letter of resignation to the Home Secretary. Because at the end of the day, I was in a position to do so. I was working with people who were second to none, absolutely passionate, absolutely committed. We had one of the lowest sickness records that you'll ever come across, and that wasn't a good thing. But it was a mark of the fact that people went the extra yard just 
if they needed to work that bit longer to help find the child that was in a particular video suffering the most horrific abuse, they did it. Okay. You had to chase them out of the office. So I resigned uh, in protest at what Theresa May did, which I just, just let me finish on this, which when I talked to senior colleagues elsewhere, one in a very high profile charity said to me, it's political vandalism, Jim, and it's wrong. But when you stand up and you say this is wrong, and I am going to resign over it, what you've got to be prepared for is that as you look around you, there'll be nobody else out of the trench with you. And that's the reality. That's mm. the reality you know, of, of when you have a government that has got significant power, significant strength, you know, who don't need to care about an opposition. That is the reality of where you find yourself at that particular moment in time. And perhaps those wiser folk kept their head down rather than rallying at that time to say, this is right, you are wrong. Because if you say it in private, you should be prepared to say it and challenge in public. Well, I'm not sure if people would totally agree with you because I think an awful lot of people would say that you did the right thing. Or actually, whether I say totally agree with that, but it was a very dramatic time and it was obviously a very frustrating time for you. Uh, however, if I might say, what it did do is propel you for the last nine years into some other really marvelous work that you've done and created um, a structure you've created and if you like a kind of a landscape you've created and you've become one of the most successful and listened to advocates for the education of people and for the child protection situation and so what i would prepare to do jim is i'd like to say there we go that's the end of part one and i would now if it's all right with you like to start part two and talk about these nine years um and uh in the second part of the program if that's all right yeah that's fine